Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole Bennett. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. Jonathan Crystal, Esquire, spent his own teen years taking unnecessary risks and getting into avoidable trouble. Now a veteran prosecutor for the city of Los Angeles, he went from disregarding laws to enforcing them. Jonathan is a certified sexual violence prevention instructor. He teaches physical, digital, and legal life safety skills to teens, families, and at schools. And he is the author of the award-winning book, which I got to read an advanced copy of, and I have been singing its praises now for a very long time, what they don't teach teens. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So happy to have you here. And I feel like that intro is like a little bit like a superhero intro. <laughs> he went from disregarding <laughs> laws to enforcing them. <laughs> and now the city of Los Angeles is safe. Well, that's pretty Far much from, true. but I do my best. <laughs> okay, so you have to tell us your story. So spoiler alert to the people who are listening. It is a story of redemption. But how, Jonathan, did you go from bad boy to prosecutor to the source of all insider information for not just teens, but also their parents? Well, uh, I moved to LA from Canada when I was 11 and uh, my parents had split up and it was culture shock moving from Edmonton to West LA. 
And uh, I just didn't have a lot of parental supervision. My dad was still in Canada. My mom got sick shortly after we arrived with MS, multiple sclerosis. And she was dealing with her own significant health issues. And I just started doing my thing and pivoted off path. I was a good kid, made a lot of bad choices, riding around on my motorcycle without a helmet, you know, putting things in my body I shouldn't have going places I shouldn't have been going. You know, some of those mistakes nearly cost me my life. And when I was in 11th grade, my parents, you know, just took a breath and came back and circled back to me and go, geez, we got to do something about this kid. And thankfully, they, they intervened and they sent me to a school, like an emotional growth boarding school where in the mornings, you'd like literally work on the farm shoveling mm-hmm. hay. Mm. And in the afternoons, you'd sit in groups and cry and talk about your issues. Can I go there now? Sure. Is it still running? <laughs> <laughs> no, they closed down. It became very controversial for a whole bunch of reasons. But for me, you know, it saved my life. Mm. And I got out of uh, that school and just decided I wanted to, you know, have a family one day. I wanted stability. Uh, I wanted to do all I could so that my own kids didn't make some of the mistakes I did. And, uh, you know, I decided I wanted to be a prosecutor and I wanted to, you know, help out in communities and uh, seek justice. And that was my goal. And I just focused on it one day at a time, one step at a time, just keep moving forward. And thankfully that happened for me. You said something very interesting. You said I was a good kid. And then you went on to describe all sorts of things, which (laughs) some people wouldn't define as a being a good kid. But I want you to just talk a little bit about that dichotomy, because I think it's really important for parents to hear how even if a kid is doing stuff they're supposed to, they can still be a good kid. So what did you mean by that? Yeah, I didn't, you know, hurt other people. I was nice to other people. I cared for other people. I had good relationships. I just wasn't good to myself Mm. and I didn't take care of myself. And uh, I was suffering, you know, I was hurting. I I was just going through a lot. You know, teenagers are going through a lot as it is. Mm -hmm. And then when you layer on, you know, other issues, some of them, you know, bigger than others, you know, I was just really damaged and hurting. And, And one of the things I talk about in my book over and over is, you know, when you're struggling, particularly as a young person, but it it applies to anyone, to not suffer in silence Mm. and to find someone to talk to. And hopefully it's your parent. For me, it wasn't. I didn't feel like I could talk to my parents, but my best friend's dad was my safe adult. And I wish I had opened up to him more because he was there for me. But one of the things that I take away from, you know, my, you know, teenage years is don't suffer alone. People care. Find someone to talk to. And I I wish I had done that. And as a prosecutor, have you used your own life experience to relate to some of the people that you've worked with in the legal system? And what has that looked like? Absolutely. So my specialty in the city attorney's office, I've been doing it for 20 years, is I focus on gang controlled properties, real property, houses, hotels, motels, apartment buildings, businesses that are controlled by gangs where they deal drugs, you know, get shot up, they do the shooting, all sorts of violence. And, you know, LA has a lot of street gangs. That's an understatement. And so we're very busy. I supervise a team of 20. And, uh, you know, I'm out in the communities all the time. I'm out there tonight. After this, I'm going out for a community meeting with LAPD and to talk to people in, you know, a very difficult area about, you know, issues and how we can help. And, you know, I guess, you know, to answer your question, Cara, 
um, whenever I, I talk to gang members all the time and I can understand how they ended up on the path they're on. And I always say to my team, if I had grown up in that neighborhood, in that situation, I would be doing what they're doing. So, you know, it's a very difficult situation. So I, I do relate and um, I have a job to do, but at the same time, I feel for them mm-hmm. and I feel for their, their often family situations and their struggles. You talked about how your safe, you called a safe adult, we use the term trusted adult, was not your parent, but was the parent of a good friend of yours. And I, I want to dive into that a little bit for our listeners because it's so important that kids have trusted adults. Parents often take it personally when they are not their child's trusted adult. What was it about this other adult that told you kind of instinctively that this was someone you could trust? I spent a lot of time at at my friend's house and we'd been good friends for a long time. And, you know, he knew my mom was sick. He knew my dad wasn't around. And he would just say, how are you doing? What's going on? Mm Mm-hmm. And that was it. And, you know, just for maybe it was two minutes, maybe it was five minutes. Oh, someone's asking about me. Someone like knows I've got stuff going on Mm -hmm. and they're just asking, oh, they care. So it was just an outlet. It's not as big an outlet as I, if I could go back in time, I would have opened up a lot more. I would have sat down on his couch, got the Kleenex and (laughs) let it all out, you know, but it was helpful. Yeah. I think parents need to let their kids know that it doesn't always have to be them because we can't control what goes on in our lives and we all have challenges. And to say, hey, it's okay to go to someone else as long as you're going to someone. And sometimes you're going to be the person that one of your kids' friends goes mm-hmm. to, right? And it's as simple as just saying, how are you? And looking them in the eye and not holding a cell phone and not being in the middle of 12 other things and just giving them a moment. Does he know? the role he played in your life? I think he does. It's interesting because I do a a lot of uh, teaching at schools from topics uh, in my book. And and one of the schools I'm at every year is Beverly High. And this gentleman's granddaughters Mm. go to Beverly High and they've sat through my lectures. Wow. And so like, it was surreal for me when I saw the granddaughters, because I know them very well, Mm -hmm. because, you know, I'm still friends with, with with their dad. And but it was like really one of those moments where I'm like, wow, I cannot believe I'm sitting here with you all these years later. It was just a really cool moment. That's how I felt when I was teaching sex ed in my kids' school. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> with a slight variation on the theme. And I, I think that's a, it's a good moment to talk about what you teach. And let's dive into the book a little bit. And let's understand. So, so this book is it's unlike anything else that's out there on bookstore shelves. What it is, is a compendium of um, information and stories and sort of outlining laws and rules so that both kids and the adults who are in their lives can understand their rights and their responsibilities. And it's beautifully written, incredibly readable, I I will point out that um, my kids, whom you have taught in their school, but my kids read your book. I think my son was in eighth grade when he read your book and it was very readable for a middle schooler. And it's the kind of book that you don't have to read cover to cover. You can flip around a little bit, but I would like to cover three topics in particular today that I think all the adults 
who are listening need to make sure they're covering with their kids. And so if you don't have this information, we'll go over some of it on this podcast. There's a lot more in the book. And the three topics are police interactions, consent, and online privacy are sort of the big three ticket items. And I think we should start with police because um, that's where your book starts. Actually. It is. Yes, exactly. There's two police chapters right out of the gate. And it, it's interesting because I was driving with one of my sons. This is probably, you know, right before COVID two years or so ago. And I got pulled over. I, I, you know, I deserve to be pulled over. No problem. And the officer walks up to my car, rolled down my window and my son starts yelling at the cop. What are you doing? Do you know my dad's a prosecutor? Blah, blah. And at the same time, both the officer and I said, be quiet. And so, you know, it's, it's just interesting to me that, you know, we teach, you know, children the rules of the road when they're, when they're teenagers, when they're ready to drive, depending on the age in the state they live. But we don't teach them what to do and what not to do when they get pulled over, whether on foot or uh, in a car. And so the, the two police chapters are, first one, your rights. And then the, the second police chapter is about what to do and what not to do when you get pulled over. So with respect to your rights, you know, parents, one thing I found from teaching this so often is that parents feel very differently about whether they want their children to answer police questions, consent to searches. So it's very personal. You know, I, I had a friend who works in law enforcement who said, surprisingly to me, I always want my kids to answer questions from the police. I always want them to consent to searches. I feel totally opposite. Hmm. And I'm very supportive of the police. I work with the police every day. But it's just a different perspective. So, you know, you don't have to answer questions. You have to identify yourself. You know, you could just simply say, if you're asked a question by the police, you know, I'm not answering your question. That could work. But at the same time, it's probably a lot better to say, you know, no disrespect officer. My parents told me not to answer questions. It's more respectful. But, you know, the reality is that the criminal justice system, not just policing, there are so many failings. And the failings disproportionately impact people of color, people, you know, who are, you know, economically struggling, the disabled. So what I make very clear in the police chapters is these are how things are supposed to go. That's how there's, doesn't mean they're going to go that way. These are your rights. But there are, you know, many people I speak to, particularly people of color say to me, well, why do I need to know my rights? The, the police won't respect them anyway. And I say basically the same thing. I'm not going to argue with you. You feel that way. You're entitled to feel that way. That's your experience. So, you know, I'm very sensitive to those issues. We see the news. We know that in many communities across our country, the relationship between police and, and certain communities are broken. So I'm very sensitive to that. I understand the dynamic. Can, can, I, yeah. can I stop you though and ask you, can you give us a little language? I was just going to ask that. Right? Yeah. Like a little for any teenager regardless of gender mm -hmm. or skin color. What is a sentence and how can that sentence be uttered? What tone of voice, what pace that parents can teach their kids? Sure. And in addition, what should someone never say to a cop? Well, you know, it depends on the circumstances, what that sentence would be. There's different scenarios. If you're being detained and you want to leave, there's a sentence you can say to find out. But what you're getting at, it, I think, is the most important thing is to be respectful. You know, whether or not you think the police deserve your respect, 
I'm not there to argue with people, whether, you know, I have my own opinion, people can hold theirs, but it's in everyone's best interest to be respectful to the police. You want to get home? We want our children to get home safely. The police officers want to get home safely. And, you know, our children may not have done anything or nothing, you know, serious, but the police don't know that. And you don't know what the police know. And so you may say, I didn't do anything, but they may have gotten a call for something very serious. So it's, you know, you got to keep your, if they stop, you got to keep your hands out of your pocket. Uh, don't even be holding your cell phone, put it away uh, or make sure, you know, you're, 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 they can see your hands, especially at night, you know, respectful, appropriate. And, you know, just if you don't want to answer questions or you don't want to consent to a search, just tell them in a really respectful way. And they're not going to just say, no problem. Officer, I don't, you know, my parents told me not to consent to searches. What are your parents, lawyers? Why are you trying to give me a problem? I'm just trying to do my job. And what are you hiding? So they're not going to make it easy on you. But if that's how you feel, you have to reassert that. Hey, it's Cara. We all know puberty isn't always easy. One of the trickiest pieces of the puberty puzzle is boobs. When will I get them? Why are they so tender? And why does every bra out there seem to pull, push, pad, itch, scratch, or be so flimsy it doesn't do a thing? That's where Umla comes in. It's a company that makes puberty comfortable, a company I founded with my friend Julie. When our own daughters began the puberty journey, we couldn't find a decent starter bra anywhere. So we made one. It fits perfectly whether boobs are just starting to bud or they've been growing for a few years. We call it the Umbra. And it's game-changing. The Umbra is made from buttery cotton that feels like second skin, ridiculously soft, and so comfortable you'll forget you're wearing anything at all. Umbra's one-of-a-kind support comes from its patented layered design that creates gentle compression without any tight binding which also means it doesn't need any bulky, awkward pads because it's built to seamlessly hide nipples and protect against those dreaded ouch moments throughout the day. Our daughters and their friends are done with puberty, but they still love and wear their umbras. It's why we say that the umbra may be your first bra, but it will definitely be your favorite bra. Come say hi, look around and find your umbra plus lots of other puberty info at myoomla.com. That's M-Y-O-O-M-L-A dot com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, Magnesium Breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, Magnesium Breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. So what I hear from my friends who are people of color, particularly people who have black sons, Mm -hmm. they feel that no matter what their kids say, they are unsafe the minute they are pulled over. And they have kind of a series of guidelines for their kids about what they should do in that situation. And it's it's akin to what you said, but I wonder if they feel like they don't even have the right to say, no disrespect, sir, but please don't search me or my parents said to, not to answer any questions. Like if even that is can be inciting in that situation. Absolutely. And again, that's that's something I explore in my book. In the book, throughout, you know, every chapter, there's chapters, there's interviews with people. You know, I, I interview two black police officers who have been on the force in different fields and have experienced the, their own, uh, what they depicted as racism when they were, you know, dressed as civilians. And they relay those stories. And, you know, you read them and, and you know, it hurts. It hurts that people feel this way. It hurts that parents are worried about their children because of the color of their skin, how this police interaction could go. And that's why I make very clear, you know, these are your rights. But the most important thing is to come home safely. So, you know, if if you're getting jammed up and you feel physically threatened, you may not want to say that again. There's there's no one answer. And uh, it can be challenging. It can be challenging for me. When I get pulled over, I'm not nervous, but some police officers are nicer than others. And there have been times I've wanted to say something in response and I've bitten my lip, even though I didn't want to. I got pulled over last year for supposedly not fully stopping in a stop sign, even though I would argue with that. And my 15-year-old was in the car with me and he was like, mom. Why didn't you argue? You did stop at that stop sign. I said, dude, it's never worth arguing with a cop. It's just never worth it. And he held a grudge. He remembered the police officer's (laughs) name because it was a very 
unusual name. And he still like talks about this guy. He's like, oh, well, officer, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, it's time to let it go. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, as far as policing goes in the history of policing, and we're going back hundreds of years, an officer has never lost an argument on the street. Not once. Arguments are for courtrooms. You can't win an argument with a police officer. So why bother? So let's get to the second part. Yeah, essentially, you don't have to consent to search it. If an officer has a lawful reason to search your car, to search your body, and you know your, your, your clothes, your handbag, whatever it may be, they're going to search you. There's nothing you can do to stop it, nor should you. But the vast majority of time, overwhelmingly majority of the time, they're going to seek your consent because they don't have a lawful purpose to search you. So it's not going to seem like they're asking for your consent, but they are. Hey, I'm going to be looking in your trunk. Any issue with that? Hey, you don't mind if I look around, right? What do you have in your handbag that I should know about? Open it up. Those are questions, even though they don't seem like it. Do the answers to those questions vary based upon whether or not you've reached 18? No. I was uh, doing an event just a few days ago, and I was, I was with some teenagers, some 11th graders, and they were asking me some stuff about the police, and they were astonished that, you know, wait, a police, police officer can question me, and they don't even have to call my parent? Yeah, at least in California, they don't have to tell your parent. If they suspect you did something, they can question you. And, and what's your advice specific to the search piece of this? How do kids stay safe when they don't want the police to search? Let's say they know there's something in that car that's going to get them in trouble, right? So what does that interaction look like and what's the best way for them to navigate it? Sure. So, so I'll give you an example. Let's say an officer pulls over somebody of any age, but we'll talk about a teenager, and for a traffic stop. Roll down the window, hand over the driver's license, et cetera, and the officer smells weed. So the officer at that point has the ability by law to search the car. They're allowed to search the car, but they're not just going to search it. They're going to first ask for consent. The reason is, even though they have a lawful basis to search the car, they want to obtain consent so that if that probable cause that they had because they smelled the weed gets thrown out of court, the consent cures all. So you gave me consent. doesn't even matter what my probable cause was because I smelled the weed. You gave me consent, so my search is good. So if they're going to search, you can't stop them. But at that point, you don't know that. You probably don't know that. And uh, you know, there's really no one way to say it, but you have to convey in a really as respectful way as you possibly can that you're not going to consent to a search. And you can say, well, are you asking me for consent? Because you're not going to know a lot of time mm. unless you know what we're talking about. Wait, wait, that's pretty tricky. You need to search my car? Are you asking for my consent? So you can ask that. Are you asking for my consent? Because I don't consent. But again, I, I have, like I said, a, a close friend who would want his son and daughter to consent to the search. I don't feel that way. Mm. I don't feel that way. But reasonable minds can differ. So I want to... Move us to consent. Sure. Different kind of consent. A different yes. kind of consent. Yes. So I appreciate, first of all, I appreciate your bringing consent into the police conversation because one of the things that Cara and I talk about all the time is how we need to broaden the concept of consent and how consent plays into all sorts of situations, not just sex, but little kids. You're talking about police interactions. There's all sorts of times where consent is an important part of the conversation. 
But I do want to move it from consent around police interactions to consent around intimate relationships, sexual experiences, so on and so forth. What's your top line on consent? And then we're going to dive in with specific questions. So if the question I get all the time from parents of teenage boys is, teenagers will be teenagers. They say they have consent, but then what happens the next morning when the girl turns around and it's always male, female in these scenarios and the girl turns around and she changes her mind and she can ruin my son's life. And it's not, it's not his fault. And the whole system is rigged against him. And that that's the, I can't tell you the number of times. So I want you to respond to that scenario that sure. gets placed in front of us. Well, let, let me start by saying in the 11 chapter, the book is 344 pages. It's a, it's a pretty hefty book. And, uh, you know, there's 11 chapters. And in only one chapter, I say this is the most important chapter in the book. And that is the chapter on sexual consent. And, you know, the reason I, s- I said that in the book is, you know, not everyone's going to do something to, to mess up, you know, their digital footprint. And not everyone's going to have a, a, a scary police interaction. But sooner or later, pretty much everybody's going to have a sexual interaction and probably multiple sexual interactions. And you have to understand consent, what it is, what it isn't. So it's incredibly important. Obviously, you both understand that. And with respect to uh, that statement, I hear it all the time, particularly from, from young men and the parents of young men. And I have three sons. So I understand where they're coming from. But that's a myth. This false accusation thing is a myth. Are there false accusations? Of course, there are false accusations. The myth is that they're common because they're not. So sexual assault is the least reported crime in society. There's lots of reasons for that. There's, there's, we could talk about that for this whole, the rest of the time if we chose to. So there's lots of reasons why people don't report. So any allegation, true or false, is unlikely. Moreover, you know, the false, when there has been false reporting documented, it's, it's maybe in the range of 2 to 8%, depending on the study which is basically the same false reporting of any other crime. So, you know, it's just not common. And even when there is a report of an assault made, unfortunately, even when it's well-founded, it's it's rarely prosecuted successfully. So there's all sorts of of things related to that. So that's a myth. And the other aspect of that is a, a failure to understand consent. So if someone's drunk, they can't give consent. And so the morning after, if they don't believe they gave you consent because they didn't have it to give you by law, someone's incapacitated, can't give consent, they have every right to feel the way they do because they couldn't give you what they don't have by law. When they're incapacitated, they can't give it. Can you say that one more time? I feel like that sentence needs to be uttered a hundred times, that if someone in a sexual encounter is incapacitated in any way, drunk or high, right? They cannot give consent. Exactly. They can't. And, you know, it causes a lot of confusion because, you know, people, but again, you know, particularly young people uh, who maybe haven't, you know, consumed alcohol for years, they're, they're new drinkers. And, you know, they wonder, okay, at what point does someone become incapacitated? Is it one beer? Is it three shots? 100%. That's the biggest question, right? right? It's a huge question. And I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer for them because it's very fact-specific. I can drink a beer and feel nothing. My wife has a beer and she gets buzzed. 
just everyone's but both different. Both of you are incapable of giving consent, well, right? Because I mean, I feel like is that what we need to teach our teenagers that if alcohol or drugs are going into a body, that body can then not say yes enthusiastically and and sort of hold up. Right? Well, that is the best practice. So, so what I say, you know, in my book and what I say when I'm teaching is, you know, the best advice I can give you. The best advice is if there's any alcohol present whatsoever, no hookups, save it for another sober day. By law, the fact that someone is having a beer doesn't mean they're incapacitated. Now, best practices don't have any hookups, but there can be a consensual sexual interaction when there's some consumption of alcohol with adults. Right. So it's like Uh, drinking and driving, right? Well, it's so funny you say that because that's, you know, when I tell people, again, teenagers primarily that hey, you know, the best, the best advice I can give you is if there's any alcohol or other drug, insert any other drug, but, we'll, we'll, you know, we're focusing on alcohol, you know, you don't have a hookup. And for some, they, they get it, that clicks for them. Others, like they're looking at me like, come on, man, like be practical. So I say, one of the pieces of advice I give is if you wouldn't drive with them, you know when to take your friend's keys, you cannot hook up with them. They can't mm-hmm. give you consent. But let's be realistic here, yeah. right? I think probably Peggy Ornstein has these stats in her books, Boys and Sex and Girls and Sex, but you may have these, these statistics at the ready, Jonathan, which is like what percentage of teenage sexual encounters involve also no, right, no drugs, drugs and alcohol, right? Or say the another way, no drugs and alcohol, yeah. right? So like, I mean, I was a teenager. We were all teenagers. We know what, our, what it looked like. We can imagine what it's like for our kids. It's not, you know, there's the best practices and then there's the like, okay, let's get real. Because if we give our kids advice that's so unrealistic, then they're just going to completely shut us out. So we need to be somewhat realistic and relatable if we're going to give them guidance. So what's the like, the relatable stuff that's not about like how many beers or how many shots, but is like another way to gauge or measure these kinds of things. Sure. So, you know, one of the things I talk about is related to stats is, you know, according to RAIN, which is the largest anti-sexual violence prevention organization, at least in the nation, maybe even more than that. And some of their data uh, shows that, you know, 50% of all sexual assaults, the perpetrator, the victim, or both were consuming alcohol. Now, to be clear, alcohol doesn't, you know, cause sexual assault. We just know that it frequently co-occurs. And so you're right. It's like, well, they're going to be drinking, many of them, not all of them. So, you know, uh, again, I give them the best advice I can, I can, which is don't do it. But, come, you know, we know many will. So that's where it comes in. Okay, you know, if you, if you know someone's incapacitated because you, you take their keys, you can't hook up with them. The other thing I'd like to mention is, you know, oftentimes, not all the times, but oftentimes, you can tell if you're paying attention to somebody if they're incapacitated. Okay, a lot of time they may be slurring, stumbling, acting out of character, passed out. You can, you know, go through the list of objective signs of being highly intoxicated. And so I say, you know, take a look, make an assessment. Do you think they're highly intoxicated? You can't always tell, but a lot of time you can. And good for you. If you're making that assessment, if you're thinking about them and going through your checklist, good for you, but you don't have to go very far because the moment you're going through a checklist, you've answered your question. 
It's asked and answered. The mere thinking whether they're too intoxicated means they are. They can't give you consent. Right. If you're wondering. Exactly. If you're wondering, then you, it's over. Then you know. So let's assume that they're they're not high. They're not drunk. They're two people who want to hook up. And it's so funny because in my language, hook up means like fool around. It doesn't mean have sex. But to my kids, hooking up. It can mean anything. Well, they think the whole it means... Sex. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I got it. I need a new, I need a new phrase. <laughs> and like fooling around sounds so weird and lame. I like I, it's like, all right. So and anyways, getting to first. Um, <laughs> I know. I know. And so uh, listeners, please share with us your advice about this. What does it sound like to get to consent, to ask for consent? Yeah. Not the like, again, there's the best practices. Do you enthusiastically agree, right? And I don't mean to mock it, but I want to be realistic here because I want parents to walk away with some language they can like actually give their kids. What does it sound like? What does it look like? And I want to make sure that this is not a gendered conversation because we know that sexual assault can happen from any gender to any gender, any age, anything. So what does it like? What does it sound like? What does sure. it feel like? Well, so one of the things I do when I'm teaching on this, this topic is t- for teenagers is, you know, I talk about affirmative sexual consent. Yes means yes. Enthusiastic. Um, how do you ask? Because how I may ask is different than how a friend would ask. It's very personal and it doesn't have to be awkward. And if, if you don't feel comfortable asking, then you probably shouldn't be having any sexual interactions, period. Okay, so, so you got to become comfortable asking. It's not that difficult, but it's very personal. And by the way, I like that because not only is that about consent, it's also about having satisfying sexual experiences requires conversation. Yeah. Hey, does this feel good? Do you like this? Should I stop? Should I keep going? Right. And I've, I've told kids this and they look at me like I'm crazy because every model they see of like people hooking up is like silent. Nobody says anything. Kids will sometimes say that they find it sexy to be asked which is an amazing piece of this, right? And this goes to the point of who's doing the asking, right? Because there are two equal parties here. It's not gendered. Sometimes the people involved are the same gender. Sometimes they're different genders and there's no one that's supposed to be doing the the asking and one that's supposed to be doing the responding. And so I have heard from a number of teens that they actually find it pretty sexy to be asked. Like I'm into you. That's such an LA. um, That's so funny. So, okay. So I interrupted myself asking you a question. <laughs> About how to, how one could ask. So you're saying, you're saying, you know, it sounds different for different people. So some, one of the things that we like to do with personality types is like, we like to give scripts according to yeah, different personality sure. types. So let's say you've got sure. like an extrovert. Yes. So, so, but going back when I'm talking to teens and I say, okay, you know, how you're going to ask is different than how your friend next sitting next to you. And so let's go around the room and I have little candies. And if you'll tell us how you would ask for consent, that's consistent with your personality. It's got to be respectful and appropriate. Tell us. And for candy, you know, people do anything. Anything. I know, it's crazy. (laughs) That's Uh, how I potty train my kids. Isn't there a song, Sex and Candy? Anyways, go on. (laughs) So um, essentially, and everyone's different. And one of the things I say is, you know, obviously it's got to be respectful and appropriate, but Sometimes, depending on the dynamic of this relationship, you can be funny. If mm-hmm. you're a funny person, it's okay to be funny. And it's not to trivialize because it's presented 
this segment in, in what I teach is after sexual assault. Mm. You know, so I have to make very clear, we're not trivializing sexual assault. I'm trying to be practical. There are funny people. And if it's respectful and appropriate, you can ask in a funny way. So I hear all types. I hear all types, you know, hey, let's F. Okay, I'm not sure that's respectful and appropriate, but depends on your relationship. Right. Hey, you know, I'd love to get down with you. And I said, well, you got to be a little more specific. Be specific. Down in what way? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Be more specific. So it's just important to be specific. Say it in a way that's consistent with who you are, the dynamics of your relationship. And, you know, uh, you're looking for someone who's as excited as you are about the interaction. And it should be for both of you. And and it shouldn't be gender. And and that's one thing I was, I did an event uh, this past Sunday and it was all young women. And we were talking about this and I say, you know, there's this myth that it's always the guys who are supposed to ask, but no, you're entitled to ask too. And if that's what you want to do, go ahead and ask. You don't have to just think it's only for the you guys. Know, you, you mentioned Peggy Ornstein and one of the things that she describes is a, a line in the gay community that's been used for mm-hmm. a very long time that's super effective, which is what are you into? Sure. So what are you into yeah. is asking yeah. for consent. It's asking for enthusiastic consent. And it's actually, it's sort of showing a, a sensitivity to the partner's need. And I think, you know, she always says that would be a line that everyone in any sexual situation should use. So I'm stealing into? that. I'm going to, when I get home tonight, I'm going to add it to my presentation yeah, it's because great. it's perfect. Yeah. It, it really, it, it's the perfect way or a really wonderful way to open up a conversation. That's right. And you should be able to tell by the response, whether the person's interested or not. That's right. So I want to make two points. One is I've noticed with middle schoolers, because girls enter puberty earlier and are often developed earlier and sometimes develop romantic or sexual interests earlier, that sometimes the sort of traditional societal paradigm about who is initiating a sexual yeah. experience I've seen is often girls and not boys in the sort of middle school years. And no one prepares boys for that. But I've heard of many boys who are put in positions where they're being asked to do something sexually that they don't want to do and they're not prepared for. So that's one example I want us to talk about and maybe talk about some language, again, realistic, actionable language for a 12-year-old boy who maybe doesn't want to do something. The second thing that I want us to talk about is we have a group of interns who are late teens and college age. And we, in our puberty portal, were writing about consent. And I did like the initial draft of things you can say to someone if they want to do something with you sexually and you don't want to. And mine were all like, no, please don't touch me. I need to leave. Get off of me, right? Like very direct, very clear. And it's what we all teach kids in like sex ed classes. And the interns looked at me and they were like, Vanessa, I would never, ever say a single one of those things. (laughs) Right. It's awkward. It's rude. It's confrontational. And so we started to talk about, okay, I was like, sorry, what would you say? And they gave me a completely different list of things. So talk us through the people on the other side of the, not the person asking, but the person responding. And do you want to start with the young end of the spectrum and then go to the old. So the super young, 12-year-old maybe, what words to give them. And then kind of your kid who is much more independent, late high school or off to college, 
what words to give them? Yeah, well, well first of all, uh, Vanessa, you know, you brought up a, a really good point that there may be, you know, boys, men, you know, young men who are approached by a, a girl, a young woman, a woman to have some sort of sexual interaction and they don't want to, but there's this gender stereotype that they are supposed to want sex. And if they don't, like, what's wrong with you, dude? Like, like, why would you say no? Well, I'm just not interested. So there's all this pressure on the, these tweens, teens, young adults to, you know, not resist those advances because like you're less of a, a, a man or so. So that's a whole dynamic, you know, I struggle too. Like what, what's the language? Because I'm 50. You know, what I say is out of, out of date by far, but in the book and, and I quote, so I asked teenagers, mm-hmm. like you're talking about, like, what do you say? And like probably the two most popular is, can we just chill? And I'm not really down. Those were probably the two I got the most of. There's others that, you know, let's just be friends, which has been going on forever. I heard it all the time as a teenager. Oh, it still hurts. <laughs> so, you know, that one I came came uh, a lot, but those are the two that probably I, I that jumped out the most because I heard those over and over, but it may be different now. I mean, that was, I wrote this, you know, a couple, you know, a few years ago. So this, what they're saying may be very different. Well, kids haven't really had a chance to have sex between then and now. So maybe it hasn't changed. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's a good point. That's right. The pandemic slowed the evolution of that language. Oh my gosh. So so can you walk us through then for a 12-year-old who may not feel comfortable with that language? And it's and it's a different ask, right? Yeah. It's it's generally speaking, it's a different ask. It's one kid who's sort of curious in sexual experimentation and another who might not be, you know, would those phrases apply or is there something that we could suggest they say that almost backs the the camera up further and because the 12-year-olds aren't always sure what they're being asked, right? Yeah. They're young and naive. I think there's some some directness in high school that in middle school, it's not direct at all. Well, I'll tell you from very recent personal experience, <laughs> a friend of my youngest son's who's 13, he had a girl come up to him. This is just a few weeks ago. And it wasn't for sex, but he knew she really liked him. And I don't remember what she was saying, but it was he, he felt like nervous. And he said to her, I really like you as a friend. So a variation of, can we just be friends? Mm-hmm. He just said, I really like you as a friend. And, and I said, you know, what was the reaction? And he said, she was really nice about it. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's, it, it can vary widely, but it's hard. It, it's really difficult to respond because we don't want to hurt people's feelings Plus, it's a new thing for for 12-year-olds to like have people who are interested in them. Maybe they haven't even gone through puberty yet. So it's like, it's so layered. So for the adults who are listening, a topic that you may have never thought about in your consent conversations is this topic of, hey, if, if you're interested in someone and they're not interested in you or vice versa... How do you go about that? And can I help you with that language? Or, you know, in, in the Vanessa way of things, sometimes she does it where she says, okay, this is what I would say. And then she is so so beautifully beaten up by all the people. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> it sounds rough, it by the way. So wrong. <laughs> um, but it's a great strategy. Um, there's one more consent topic I would love to, to talk about, which is screens. 
and images that are shared on screens, whether it's nudes, it's videos that are shared. Can you help us understand what consent is required there? And how does that work? Ooh, that's a, that's a biggie, Cara. And you know it's a biggie. So to start, if you're under 18, and it depends on the state, the consent ranges in age across the nation from 16 to 18. California, you have to be 18. So let's assume that the age is 18. You can't take, share, well, you, you can take it, but you can't store it on a device, a nude of a, a minor, which could include yourself. So for example, we'll call her Jamie. She's 16. She takes an, a topless image of herself. It goes onto her camera roll. She's in possession of child pornography. Now, child pornography is not the correct term. It's what, what we refer to. It's really more appropriately called child sexual abuse material. So I just want to be clear on that. But we call it child pornography, so I'll use that term. So when she sends it, you know, if Bill is asking her for that image and she sends it, she's now, you know, shared child pornography. He saves it to his camera roll. He's in possession. So... Those are serious, heavy-duty crimes. And, and let's be clear, even if she chose to do it, yep. and even if he asked yep. and she said yes, so this is where our whole conversation about consent is going to shift dramatically. Exactly. And it's similar to what we talked about before when someone's incapacitated. Uh, they can't give you what they don't have by law. So even if they say yes, it doesn't count. They can't give you what they don't have. And it's the same thing. A minor can't give consent for sexual activity. You know, again, assuming that the age of consent is 18. So, you know, and essentially there have been numerous situations where young people, you know, minors have been arrested, convicted in some instances, having to register as sex offenders for nudes of themselves. Now, that's pretty rare. Mm. The far more likely consequence of having a nude is a, probably a school consequence if there's a school search of a device because they believe there's a violation of school policy. But even more common is social and emotional consequences. So if that nude gets out to unintended recipients, there can be bullying, harassment, and, and things can be you know, very difficult. Also, you know, the thing about nudes, and so I, I have an entire chapter in the book about sextortion which is online sexual blackmail. And according to the Department of Justice, it's the fastest growing crime against minors online. The fastest growing. And pretty much nobody knows about sextortion uh, or very few people. And again, according to the Department of Justice, the average age of a sextortion victim is 15. So we're talking about a crime, a, 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 a crime of unspeakable brutality that really targets young people. And so what happens is it can happen a number of different ways, but probably the most common, although we're still getting data, is... There's an in-person relationship. So let's just say, you know, Joe is dating Melissa and Melissa gives Joe a nude, but it could, it's not gendered, but, but most commonly, at least with the exchange of nudes, it could be, you know, the, the female being victimized. So Melissa provides the nude. She wants to break up. And Joe says, if you break up with me, mm -hmm. I'm going to send your nude to everybody. Or you've broken up with me. If you don't come back to our relationship, mm -hmm. I'm going to send your nude to everybody. And it can also happen by catfishing, which is like a fake online persona. So, you know, unlike when we grew up, you know, obviously there was no such thing as an online relationship. That's not the reality today. There are people who have online, deep, meaningful relationships, or at least as they see them, and have never met. And when there's a catfisher involved, so it, it 
an example would be me, you know, creating a Facebook profile of a, a teenage girl. Mm-hmm. And I'm convincing. I post, oh, my school day was this. I got an A in my class and I put pictures. And then you lure someone else into that online relationship. You ask them for a nude, they provide it. And then you make a demand, you know, uh, send more pictures, send videos, give me money. And, and the list goes on. So it's a, it's a really dangerous crime. And it all starts with the nude. It all starts with the nude. Now, that doesn't mean we should blame the people who have trusted someone and, ha- and had their trust breached. But that's how it starts. It starts with the nude. So Jonathan, what do we say to our kid who ha- this has happened to, right? Hopefully, if something, this happens to our kid, they come to us. Yeah. If not, you know, if we, f- we find out about it some other way, what are the legal pathways? What are the ways adults can, because it's so common. I know so many people, particularly mm-hmm. within committed relationships where the sextortion then happens down the road. How can we help our kids if this happens? Well, you know, what I, you know, like to emphasize, particularly because, you know, teenagers, it's going to be probably their first intimate relationship, maybe their second, um, to remind them that, you know, people sometimes break promises and we don't think they're going to, but, you know, sometimes when there's a breakup, people can show us a side of themselves that we did not know existed. So just when it comes to your nude, you know, you probably shouldn't trust anybody. And if it does get out and, and you want to talk to somebody about it, well, first of all, if, if you can come to your parent or the trusted adult, great. But if, if you don't feel you have that, there are online resources. For example, we talked about RAIN, um, R-A-I-N-N. They're available 24-7, 365 to talk to people who are, are victimized related to sexual violence. So there are resources, anonymous resources that, that you can talk to somebody about. As far as law, law enforcement goes, you know, the, the challenge that law enforcement, you know, faces police officers, and it depends on the city, it depends their sophistication, it depends how busy they are, is that, you know, the digital crimes can be hard to investigate. They can be very resource intensive. And some police departments are better situated to deal with those. But when it comes to child sexual abuse material, uh, the best place to go is the FBI because they have a lot of resources and they take sexual crimes against minors very seriously. And uh, that's probably the place I would start. So just to give a couple of takeaways for parents that they can they can act on with their kids. It sounds like one is to have conversations about nudes from a few different perspectives. One being sort of helping your kid understand the law around child pornography. Another being the concept of um, you as an individual always want to be the owner of anything that is about your your person or your property, right? Oh. So, so if once you send out the image, it is it is out there, gone for good. And so, for parents who have handed their kids a phone because they're in middle school and everyone else is getting a phone, and they've taken all the apps off and they're not on social media and they're doing a great job, but oops, they forgot to disable the camera. Maybe that is a really really important set of conversations to have when they're young. Is about taking the nude, and then separate from that is the completely non-judgmental parent conversation once they have taken a nude and perhaps shared it about what can be done to protect them. And the important piece being that parents don't judge their kids because this is a currency that kids use 
all the time. And so even if we can't imagine making that choice in our kids' world, it is a choice that is made often. Does that sound... Cara, I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) And the one thing I'd add, and by the way, chapter 11 is all about cameras because you said it, the camera, at least from my perspective and all, it took me five years to write my book. You know, I have a busy life and trying to write in the mornings, on the weekends, at night. So there's a lot of people interviewed, a lot of research. And that was a big takeaway for me. Like these cameras to me, are like the, the scariest part of these devices. Cameras got much better while you were oh, writing. Yeah. Your <laughs> That's right. They really did. And so, so, but one of the other aspects that I think is incredibly important when it comes to nude sexting is to remind, you know, teenagers. And again, when I say teenagers, I mean tweens, young adults as well. To remind teenagers that, you know, if you choose, I don't want you asking anyone for a nude, it's a, it, it's a serious crime to get a, a, a nude from a minor and even to ask. But if you ask and they say no, don't ask again. Don't coerce. Don't manipulate. Don't promise you're, you're going to delete it, but you know you're going to save it and you're going to share it because I see that all mm-hmm. the time. You know, I, I would hope they wouldn't even ask for a nude, but if they are going to choose to ask, don't keep asking. Right. And, and a maybe is a no. And that's true of all the encounters that kids have. Sure. Take the person, take the no. Can I, before we wrap, can I ask you on the topic of privacy in general, which is different than this topic, but sort of its own little um, universe of, of things that you cover in the book. Can you just leave us with a super quick, short list of things that kids and the adults in their lives can and should do to protect their privacy? For sure. So again, digital privacy is an entire chapter. There are so many things. I think I've got like 35 things they can do. And no one does them all. I don't do them all. And basically I say, just do two or three of these things. If you do two or three of these things, you know, putting a webcam cover on your laptop, uh, you know, don't sharing, don't share your passcode with your friends to your device. And, uh, you know, don't give them your passwords to your social media. It's, a, it's astonishing to me. Again, I'm 50. I'm, I guess I'm out of touch. But how often they have each other's passwords. Okay. I just, it's, it's a bad practice because your friend today may not be your friend mm-hmm. tomorrow. They may be a frenemy. Uh, again, there could be an intimate relationship and there's a bad breakup. But if I had to choose one and it's hard to, I would, I would probably say if you have a computer in your room that has a camera on it, put a webcam cover on, you know, it costs maybe like a dollar or two on Amazon. Or you could just use black electrical tape because during the research and again, writing of my book, I saw a lot of instances where teens had their laptops or, or their desktop computers in their room and they didn't have a, a camera, co- uh, a little tape or a webcam cover on. And I suppose, I guess everything I'm seeing is that it's become so much easier to hack into people's computers And if you hack into somebody's computer, it's not hard to get access to their camera. Mm. And once you you can see the camera in in that person's bedroom, you know, you get to see people in the most private moments. So that's probably, you know, something that's really easy to do. And then, you know, also, uh, you know, I guess they're not going to stop it, but they, at least what I see with my seventh grader is that they all like take each other's phones Mm -hmm. and they're just like on each other's phones during class or after class. 
And I say like, you know, what are people doing each other's phones? Nothing really. Like, wow, I wouldn't want to just hand my phone over to anybody. Think about all the private, private things we have on our phone. You know, your contacts, your social media, your photos with GPS coordinates. I mean, you could go down the list. Um, your nudes. Your nudes, <laughs> that's right. Maybe as an adult. But, but you know, the bottom line, when I teach on uh, digital privacy, I always start with the same question. How many of you would rather have the police search your house or your phone? Mm-hmm. And, and they list, all say... They all say, go search my house. Yeah. My phone's off limits. Yeah, Because yeah. we have a lot of stuff on our devices, but yet we often don't take some basic steps to keep them private. And so in this conversation, the three threads have come together, right? We started by talking about police. Then we were talking about consent and nudes. And then we're talking about privacy. And of course, they're all part and parcel of the same very complicated web of things that our kids face as they're growing up. When we finish an episode... We like to end with one kind of takeaway. Um, maybe it's something that came up in the conversation that resonated with you. Maybe it's something that you didn't have a chance to say. And so that we don't put you on the spot, we can go first with our takeaways. Vanessa, do you want to go? Yes. I think that approaching our kids without judgment and preparing them ahead of time for the things that can go wrong and also being caring and supportive when things do go wrong, because they will go wrong. We have to do both things. And I appreciate the language and the tone with which approach those issues and those challenges, whether it's having your car searched or sending a nude or doing like having a complicated sexual encounter that you that we are resources to our kids, even when they mess up, even when we've told them to do otherwise, even when we've prepared them. And I will carry that with me because the temptation as a parent is to turn around and say, but I told you, insert, you know, not to do this or that. And we have to be there on both sides of the experience, not just in the preventative side. For sure. What's yours, Cara? For me, in the very beginning of the conversation, I was so struck by the fact that you were both describing being pulled over by the police. <laughs> because <laughs> I am so risk averse. You don't You don't run stop signs. It's not a good quality necessarily because I'm so risk averse that I'm such a rule follower. And that creates its own difficulties. And so Sometimes when we're talking about all these topics, we're thinking about the kids who are risk takers. Sure. But these topics apply to everyone. And even if you have a kid who's temperamentally a total rule follower, never speeds, puts on her seatbelt, blah, 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 blah. I don't know who I'm talking about. You know, all of these issues still come up. And there is still a world of information that kids who are afraid to break rules will need. So I think my takeaway is, Parents of kids who are very by the book and who do not push boundaries, your kids still need this information. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for saying that because uh, this is a a book about prevention. And, you know, we want our kids to make informed decisions, but yet we're not giving them the information they need to do that. So it's simply about information. And and you captured it when you said, you know, this is not really a book you read cover to cover. Go ahead but you pick and choose the topics when they're most relevant in, in the lives of your children. You know, my, my takeaway would have been not to suffer in silence. So I'm going to, I'm going to shift. I'm going to get something else in. When it comes to teaching the concepts in the book, 
whatever it is, consent, uh, you know, sexual harassment prevention, police, go on, you know, the list. I found, you know, that my three sons learn things very differently. Mm. One will one will read chapters of my book. One will read like a couple page pages, and one will not read at all. My kids won't read my book either. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So what I've discovered is that you know, I either want to supplement the one who's read, or you know, the one who, who's only read a little. So I have found that less is more. It's it's astonishing or surprising, let's say, how much I can get uh, across in one minute. And I can hold their attention for one minute. And so it's really pick the things. You can't, you can't teach every single thing on every page in this book. But what resonates with you, you can. You can have a conversation with your children. That's right. And it's just, it doesn't have to be a long conversation. You tell them like, this is one of the most important things. Let's talk about this. And it doesn't have to be a long conversation because they remember they probably remember better when it's shorter than when we talk and talk and talk. We like to say that talking about puberty is like a million tiny conversations yeah, and yeah. talking about your kid's safety is also a million tiny conversations. Agreed. Jonathan, thank you so much. This was fantastic. I learned so much. I'm going to make my kids listen to this in one minute increments. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Karen Vanessa. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at The Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.